Hey, and welcome to The Token Daily. I'm your host, Suna Amaz. Each week, we sit down with movers and shakers in crypto to discuss big ideas, both in crypto and outside of it. Everything from trends we're seeing in the space to the books we're reading lately. This podcast is presented by the folks over at Blockworks Group, a blockchain event and media production company. For exclusive content and events that provide insights into the crypto and blockchain space, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Saifuddin Amus is a Bitcoin economist and the author of The Bitcoin Standard. On the show today, we discuss Bitcoin adoption in the Middle East, Saifuddin's talk at the Unconfiscatable Conference titled Beyond the Bitcoin Standard. We also talk about JP Morgan coin and what Saifuddin anticipates Bitcoin transaction fees will look like once all Bitcoins have been mined. Hey, Saifuddin, thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Suna. Of course. So a lot of our listeners know you as the author of the Bitcoin Standard, and you're also an econ professor. And I've joked around with you about this, but what a lot of people don't actually know is you initially started as a mechanical engineer, and you were also studying sustainability. And then you made the jump to econ and Bitcoin. And I joke that this positions you really well to be like the sole guardian or defender of Bitcoin. I was curious if you give us a little color about the journey from mechanical engineering sustainability into, into Bitcoin. Um, really, the, um, the the missing link in, in that journey is, I think, Austrian economics. So um, I, I was interested in engineering in undergraduate and I studied engineering because, you know, uh, uh, you have to do a technical degree or else um, you're considered largely a failure if your father is a doctor. So, you know, engineering was the least the least of my father's expectations since he was a doctor. So I had to do engineering, do something technical, but I was interested more in economics. And then I, as I did my PhD in um, in, in, in the economics program on sustainable development, um, towards the end of that, I started getting attracted towards Austrian economics and became really interested in uh, studying monetary economics from the Austrian perspective and just um, just in time for Bitcoin's emergence. Um, so heard about Bitcoin pretty early and dismissed it and thought it was, you know, an interesting idea, but obviously it's not going to work. But it kept on working and... Um, then, uh, you know, all of these different uh, backgrounds and aspects of it started to um, start, started to make sense differently in the light of emergence of Bitcoin, because, you know, there was um, a lot of the things that a lot of things that I had learned and studied in Austrian economics were becoming um, were being um, acted out live in front of us through the emergence of Bitcoin. And so it continued to captivate me. And outside of just sheer time alone, you said you initially dismissed it, but then it was sticking around for a long enough time. You're like, okay, there might be something here. What other factors convinced you that this could be something? Ultimately, it really is about the survival of it. The fact that it just continued to operate, you know, every 10 minutes, it comes, it just produces, well, not exactly, but, you know, it continues to produce a new block roughly every 10 minutes. And whatever happens in the world, it continues to produce a new block. And, you know, the more you learn about how impressive of an achievement that is, um, particularly today, you know, when everything supposedly online is hacked and compromised, and yet Bitcoin continues to deliver a block of transactions 
every 10 minutes and you know the transactions turn out to be all valid and nobody is double spending and all of these continue to be um, so all of this continues to happen every 10 minutes that's really the most astonishing thing about it the fact that it continues to survive so then um, when you think of the sort of social aspects of it the amount of attack that it would um, uh, that it would sustain and the amount of um, you know lack of knowledge of how it works the fact that it survives you know the kind of technical and um, technological and economic attacks and political attacks that could be launched against it and continue to operate so that anybody who has control of their private keys can join the network and send and get their confirmation within a few minutes um, and start accumulating more confirmations and send money all over the world that you know the more you start understanding how impressive an achievement that is the more you start thinking okay there might be something there and for me really it was only until 2013 that i that i would say that i stopped being skeptic uh, skeptical of bitcoin's chances of success that i until then i thought you know something in my mind i thought something like silk road would happen and you know somebody would get thrown in jail for um, using Bitcoin, and then that would be the end of Bitcoin because nobody else would want to use it. Um, but something like that happened, and it, uh, it, 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 the exact opposite impact uh, was felt, which is that uh, people actually, yeah, people actually continue to use Bitcoin more. And in fact, if you look around the Silk Road incident, I, rem I remember that when the Silk Road website was shut down. Uh, initially, there was a drop in the price, but over time, you know, the transaction number went up massively, and the um, and the price continued to go up, which um, which for me, you know, suggested that there's more to this than just uh, some flimsy um, illegal. Uh, experiment on the internet that can be shut down by the government. This can actually sustain serious kind of uh, attack. Absolutely. I think the market's matured a bit now, especially in 2019. But I mean, that was 2013 and earlier. And the fact that Bitcoin was still able to outlive its figureheads or leaders or you know, recognizable people in the space speaks calibers to its potency. So you are teaching in Lebanon. And I wanted to ask you this because personally, I mean, my family's from Lebanon. And I feel as though I hear a lot of coverage about how Bitcoin functions in South America, but I don't hear as much regarding the climate in the Middle East. What does Bitcoin adoption look like in countries like Lebanon, Jordan, and what is the path towards getting more Bitcoin adoption there look like? Well, in Lebanon and Jordan in particular, the central banks have been excessively hostile to Bitcoin. They've been pretty clear about the fact that uh, they're, they don't welcome their banks or their citizens using it. And so no exchanges have been set up and banks are very careful about not letting uh, their clients join exchanges abroad and so i know people that have been called up by their banks uh, in jordan where the bank would call them and say you know uh, we saw that you did this transaction and we now realize this is an exchange that deals with uh, bitcoin and we can't let you have that so we'd need you to come and uh, sign uh, a, a letter of uh, you know 
promising us that you're never going to uh, send money to these kinds of entities again. And my, and my friend closed uh, the he closed his account and set up an account at another bank. Rightly uh, so. <laughs> yeah, uh, but in 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 Lebanon and Jordan, there's uh, there's quite a bit of hostility from uh, the central banks, and I think in Lebanon in particular, the central bank had has always had a very conservative approach towards um, finance. So during the 2000s, when all of the world was speculating on U.S. real estate uh, financial instruments. The Lebanese Central Bank had just basically said, "We can't, uh, we won't let any of our banks deal with any of that stuff." And so, when the crisis happened, and all of the American, uh, uh, you know, mortgage-backed securities and uh, all of these financial instruments, none of the Lebanese banks had any exposure from it. So they like to be very conservative about things, and so for them. Bitcoin just seems like an enormous non-starter. It's a big problem, and um, you know, banks are not allowed to deal with it, and they're quite hostile to it. And so, the, the, there's not really much institutional use of it. But there are brokers who buy and sell on the on the ground, effectively. So you can meet people and buy and sell. And um, of course, you know, the ironic thing about it, and the interesting thing about it. Um, because this is Bitcoin and, you know, anybody who's seen how uh, different kinds of currencies work in countries that have had currency problems will not be surprised by this. But, you know, on the one hand, you have the government placing restrictions on these things. On the other hand, when you talk to some of the brokers in many of these countries, you, you know, they tell you about the, um, about the kind of clients that they're getting and the people that they uh, sell their bitcoins to and generally it happens to be people who are uh, the rich and powerful in society and the people who are uh, politically influential they are the ones who happen to be the ones uh, buying bitcoin on the ground while it is also their government that is going around placing restrictions on it and i think this is a, this is a trend that's uh, that, that that we're going to be seeing all over the world, you know, it's similar to Jamie Dimon and his daughter buying Bitcoin uh, while he goes and uh, uh, trash talks Bitcoin on live TV. Absolutely. And so I think the second part to that question is what would it take for us to see more Bitcoin adoption for non-politicians and the regular folk in Lebanon and Jordan? I think essentially... You know, you could think that these things are counterproductive, but, you know, it's not entirely clear to me that this is uh, very bad for Bitcoin adoption in the long run. Because, in fact, um, you know, having access to banks and exchanges might not necessarily be a good thing because a lot of people just end up... um, uh, using that as a way to gamble on um, all kinds of um, pointless financial instruments that uh, don't really make much sense. But once you're able to get into the world of exchanges and um, start doing that, then it, it, it's more likely for people to start taking the path of uh, um, gambling with these uh, coins rather than thinking of it as a long-term uh, hold, holding opportunity or as a long-term uh, technological change that people are going to hold on to. So the the fact that you don't have a very liquid market, you don't have an access to exchange, can mean that people will end up holding on to their coins more and more. And so people are more likely to buy and hold for long times. 
and this might you know th- this is ultimately for me i think what's uh, what's the uh, w- what has to be the real driver of adoption there's no way that we can make a uh, liquid market for bitcoins there's no way that bitcoin can become a ma- a a, a, um, a widely used medium of exchange which is what the money primarily is there's no way that can happen unless a lot of people first are able to have uh, significant cash balances in this currency and so we need long-term hodlers effectively more and more people to hold and as more and more people hold if that happens, it becomes more and more likely that you start finding um, opportunities for trade with people who hold Bitcoin. And then the opportunities for trading Bitcoin will continue to increase more and more. So in a sense, I think you know what's going to drive Bitcoin adoption in these countries is similar to what's going to drive it everywhere else in the world. I think if Bitcoin continues to work, if it continues to operate, the economics of its supply are going to... Um, you know, impose economic reality of the fact that its scarcity is going to uh, win out as opposed to uh, all of the other uh, governmental competitors that it has. I see. Yeah, different countries, but similar trends likely, especially given the mutual government distaste for something like Bitcoin. At Unconfiscatable, which Mm -hmm. is a conference that was hosted, a Bitcoin conference that was hosted in Vegas for the first time, you mentioned during your talk beyond the Bitcoin standard that you're working on another project right now. And I wanted to know if you could give a sneak peek to our listeners about this, like new seminars and lectures you have that you're preparing. Yes. Uh, so I'm uh, working on um, developing a uh, curriculum of uh, courses on Austrian economics and Bitcoin that I will develop um, over the next few weeks and months and uh, have online as a place for uh, people to go, uh, take the courses either through you know watching the lectures and downloading the lectures and getting the syllabus and the reading list that's one option and then I'll also have uh, live seminars uh, with up to 10 students so we'd uh, all join um, over video uh, conferencing and do one hour a week for about eight weeks or so to discuss the readings of the course so effectively you know i i plan on developing something like eight or ten courses on economics that would be offered um that you could take as a seminar at different times where you can sign up and you know find the time that is suitable for you and then you can sign up for the seminar take the course and um that's you know the uh, seminar aspect of it but there's also the lectures and the uh, course readings which you can uh, take as a course on your own pace this is the next project that i'm working on what are you hoping to ultimately accomplish through this program well basically it's uh, it's it's just, it's it's essentially me making my job as a teacher of economics and as a communicator of economics more efficient that's what it ultimately comes down to um universities uh, if you've read my book you know the chapter where i discuss the effect that government money has on or a government credit the fact that government is able to control the money supply and the grant credit means that success on the market becomes more and more a function of being able to secure government funding and government credit at low interest rates rather than being able to um 
please the customers or i mean obviously not rather than you still have to please the customer but more and more of success becomes about um having access to the government and so this leads to all of these kinds of institutions that are addicted to government credit and government subsidies and government grants like education if you look at what has happened with education you see that you know tuition goes up um, universities continue to charge more students pay more loans go up in, in, in an enormous quantity and yet you look at the amount of time that students get with professors it does not go up it's not like they're paying for um, they're paying more and getting more time with professors and also you look at the pay that professors make and you see that it's also not really going up much so where is all that extra money really going and the answer is it's primarily going to all of the non-essential non-teaching um, people at university and primarily if you look at what's happening with universities you know more and more of the university experience is about things that don't have to do with the student teacher relationship anymore uh, whether it's um, you know the politics involved in university or the social life around university or all sorts of other things um, but primarily, of course, it's just it, it leads to the, a very large amount of bureaucratic bullshit work in these kinds of institutions, wherein, you know, as a professor, you end up just having to write research that is, you know, not valuable because it is read widely or because people like it. But you have to write the research that gets the right kind of research grants. And so it has to be written in the right way. And so it's it ends up being this giant institution where. Um, a lot of bureaucrats boss around the professors to do things that have nothing to do with the students, but it's all about, you know, the, um, the, the bureaucratic people in the university being able to play the stupid bureaucratic games that, that universities play with one another, rather than just focusing on providing interaction, real value between the student and the professor, allowing the student to communicate with the professor and get real mentoring and real experience. And so for me, uh, being able to teach those courses is ultimately about um, just having a direct relationship with students. It's, it's an extremely inefficient system for me to be able to teach people while um, working at a university relative to this because the university involves many more um, doing things that don't really matter, teaching things that have to be taught because, you know, if the universities all have to teach the same sort of curriculum in order to um, look like they're, you know, at the top because, you know, everybody wants to teach the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it solves inefficiencies and I also think it just democratizes access, right? Now all you need is a internet connection as opposed to, you know, physically being in a time or space. So cool. Yeah, absolutely. Like the real driver of this for me is a realization that came to me a few years ago. And I think I tweeted about this a, a while ago, which is that with the invention of uh, Google's suite of productivity apps, only that, I think you could arguably say that you don't really need any staff at a university anymore that is not a professor or student. Essentially, you could run a university purely with a professor and students. You don't need anything else because, you know, everything else is incidental that the students can just buy from somebody else. You know, the, the restaurants or the cafeteria or all these other services, they don't have to be part of the university. 
and the, 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 there's no need to bundle all of these things. Plus, you know, uh, in the U.S., you have all of the sports that comes bundled with the university. There's no need to bundle all of these things with the university experience. All of these things can just be um, bought and sold on markets of their own rather than um, being part of universities, which is supposed to be for education. Yeah, completely agree. I mean, that's why we're seeing startups like Lambdas, Popup, and Flockjays, etc. So in the same Beyond the Bitcoin Standard talk, you also mentioned hyperinflation in countries uh, in South America and made sure to highlight the fact that this is not caused by Bitcoin. Hyperinflation is organically, to the extent that anything happens organically in today's economies, uh, come about. And Bitcoin is just going to be the natural safe haven that holders of hyperinflated currencies flock to. As I was reflecting on that, it had me thinking about the part in your book, The Bitcoin Standard, where you say Bitcoin is a harder and sounder money. And if it exists in the same market that fiat does, fiat will dwindle to near insignificance. And at the same time, you say that Bitcoin won't be used for payments. You think it'll just be used on the settlement layer. So to me, those sound orthogonal or contradictory. Um, it seems as though we'll be using fiat for payments, but Bitcoin for settlement layers. Uh, can you reconcile the two ideas? No, I, I don't think we'd be using fiat for payments and, and Bitcoin as a settlement layer. I think what would happen is that when I say not using Bitcoin, I would mean not using on-chain transactions for your individual consumer payments. So when you make a payment for buying your proverbial coffee with Bitcoin, you'll be paying in Bitcoin, but you won't be making a transaction on the Bitcoin blockchain. You'll be most likely either using some sort of second scale, second layer scaling solution like Lightning or using some other kind of um, scaling technology or possibly going through a trusted um, second party, uh, the trusted third party, I mean. Um, ultimately, it's, uh, it, it's not feasible for Bitcoin to scale on-chain. I think the path, the idea that we're going to have uh, every single of the many billions of transactions that happen every, every day, being on a chain that is announced to everyone, I think that's just not going to happen. Um, the economics and the engineering of it just doesn't really make sense. And so there will be scaling solutions that will allow you to transact with Bitcoin without having to make an on-chain transaction for every single transaction. And you know what these solutions are is not really um, is not really clear yet. We'll we'll uh, we'll find out, I think, with time. But I think ultimately, what people miss is that Bitcoin doesn't need to be completely trustless and um, decentralized, and um, at ev at the level of every single transaction. Um, ultimately, if Bitcoin is able to be completely trustless and decentralized at the uh, first layer of transaction, at the top, let's say, a couple of million transactions a day, then that on its own is extremely valuable because, you know, it's not like it's up against any alternatives that can offer any more trustless transactions. The, you know, the, the, the only other alternative of um, moving uh, money without uh, recourse to, um, well, you know, moving cash is gold, effectively. If you think about Bitcoin and gold, you know, moving them around, you can still, even with without any scaling solution to Bitcoin, even if Bitcoin stays in its current shape and form for all the rest of history, 
Bitcoin can still move value much cheaper than gold and will still move many more um, transactions. We will we'll be able to move many more, uh, much more value um, at a lower cost than gold. And so rather than building a, um, a, a you know second layer trusted uh, solutions built on something like fiat money, which is um, controlled by governments, I think, you know, Ultimately, Bitcoin might succeed with trusted uh, solutions and uh, second layer solutions that involve um, custodial solutions, um, but they will be built on Bitcoin. And that would still be strictly a huge improvement over uh, having um, the base layer being something that is controlled by government. So for me, I think Bitcoin's decentralization, it would be nice to have decentralization as much as possible. I think it's completely its completely out of the question that we would have um, all transactions in the world settle on-chain with the kind of level of security that is provided to on-chain transactions. There will be trade-off, and I think lower important, I think the most important transactions will uh, be the ones that go on chain and how the technology plays out for the scaling of the second layer solutions i think is 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 uh, anyone's guess uh, will uh, will find out over time right only time will tell so I, I think it was very interesting though that you don't say fiat will completely collapse or snap out of existence you say that it'll be very insignificant. What role, if any, do you still see fiat playing in a world where Bitcoin is used for settlement payments on chain and as well as, you know, layer two or like uh, payments for proverbial coffee? I mean, well, fiat, I mean, the only useful role it has ever played is not as money. It is just a mechanism for financing governments. I think this is the key thing that uh, people need to understand. And Friedrich Hayek makes the extremely important point which defenders of government control of money um, appear oblivious to, which is that government control of money was never sold on the premise of it being able to provide us superior money. It was always sold on the premise of it was going to help the government finance one thing or the other. And, um, you know, uh, after government came to control it, it then started to make the argument that we maybe are able to do with it better than what happens before. But, um, you know, the point of government money is not to serve any purpose for the people. It's uh, that use it. It's 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 a mechanism for financing the government that um, expropriates the value produced by these people. So ultimately, I think what what I was trying to say, I think the point that I make is not that I don't see uh, is is not that I think fiat continues to survive in the Bitcoin world. I think ultimately, um, Bitcoin, I think is. Um, you know, I, I think I think Bitcoin is ultimately um, a, a superior uh, money to fiat currency, and I think it's, uh, if it continues to succeed, it'll arguably gain more and more in value. But the key point that I mention is that I don't necessarily think that Bitcoin brings about hyperinflation. I don't really think that Bitcoin is going to cause hyperinflation, and I think. Everybody thinks, you know, if Bitcoin replaces the dollar, everybody looks at it from the demand side. From the demand side, yes, if everybody stops or if a majority of people stop wanting to hold cash balances in dollar and stop wanting to get paid in dollar and start preferring to get 
paid in Bitcoin and start holding their cash balances in Bitcoin and the value of Bitcoin goes up, then you would expect, you know, um, the value of the dollar to go down. And so then people extrapolate that to go and say, well, then we're going to have hyperinflation. But they, well, I'm not saying hyperinflation won't happen. Of course, it can happen just like it happens in places in Venezuela, um, like, like in Venezuela today. But if you look at what happens in places like Venezuela or every single example of hyperinflation in history, it was always the increase in the supply of money that brought about the collapse of the value. You know, hyperinflation, contrary to what the Keynesians may imagine, doesn't just happen because, you know, the gods get angry or animal spirits or whatever figure of speech uh, Keynes used for it. Hyperinflation happens because the money supply increases massively. It has always been the case. And um, the point is that in the modern economies of the world, the majority of the money supply, contrary to the examples of the money supply increasing through printing money, you know, most of the hyperinflations happen, you know, you could see that the central bank and the, and, and the government are printing more and more banknotes uh, as the value is collapsing. But now it's different because money is digital. So there's no printing happening and money is essentially being generated through the generation of credit. So the generation of credit on the markets is what generates money. But the rise of Bitcoin, while it'll decrease the demand for holding dollars, it would also likely decrease the demand for loans in dollars and decrease the demand for people to borrow in dollars because people, you know, if they move to Bitcoin, they pay off their debts. You know, we're assuming Bitcoin grows, of course, assuming the amount of people holding on to Bitcoin grows significantly. I would imagine people who move to the Bitcoin economy, move towards using the Bitcoin standard, would be living more similarly to people in the 19th century, holding on to um, more savings and not borrowing much. So I would expect these people would pay off their debt. And, you know, if you've hung out with Bitcoiners, you know a lot of people who've used Bitcoin to pay off their debts and gotten out of debt. So if Bitcoin grows, it's not just going to grow in terms of the demand for holding it. It's also going to grow in terms of the... Um, it's also going to... Um, it's, it's, it's going to, de to decrease the demand for holding the dollar, but it's also going to increase the... Uh, sorry, it's also going to decrease the supply of dollars because it's going to decrease the demand for credit and the creation of credit is how new money is created. So you would expect then that, you know, contrary to some of the um, uh, uh, more enthusiastic Bitcoiner scenarios, you know, we don't necessarily have to see this um, end in a massive hyperinflationary uh, Armageddon where the no-coiners come crying to us and beg us for forgiveness. It doesn't have to be this way. And it actually might be even nicer and smoother, which is that I, I, I imagine the growth in Bitcoin to continue as an alternate uh, and independent monetary system from the government-controlled monetary system. And over time, of course, it's volatile and it's new and people are getting used to the technology and people are getting used to learning to how to control their uh, private keys and so on. But over time, if it continues to grow and it continues to scale and it continues to succeed, then you would expect that 
it you know it, it, people in it it would be like a um, like a gold based economy in the 19th century compared to a silver based economy you know the people in the gold based economy their wealth appreciates over time whereas people in silver based economy their wealth depreciates over time and so um you would expect this kind of relationship to happen and it could be i think the point that i'm trying to say is that this could last for all of our lifetimes maybe for all we know you know bitcoin continues to grow and um, you know trudge along from one um uh, you know one bubble to the next growing in magnitude and liquidity over time and you know a lot of painful uh, teething uh, moments and a lot of painful falls and a lot of people learning lessons the hard way um, and it could it could be a long time, and you know as it grows, it doesn't necessarily have to kill fiat currency because it is actually likely to if it does grow, if it does continue to grow, it's likely to reduce the supply of the currency as well. And I think central banks might be able to manage this kind of you know um, decline in the money supply or. Uh, decline in the rate of growth in the money supply. You know, I don't think they're going to have a problem with printing more and more money, but they'll manage the statistics around this, like they've been managing it for so long in all of these centrally planned economies of the, you know, the Soviet Union, but also in, you know, modern uh, Western economies. There's a large element of government pricing and government calculation of prices and statistics. That stuff could continue. You know, these the, this kind of sock puppetry of economics where value is mandated by government and the government calculates um, all of these statistics. Um, I, I think this stuff could continue for a while. Um, and, and so uh, essentially... This is this is my case for why Bitcoin doesn't necessarily lead to hyperinflation. Yeah, no, I, I think you s- summarize it or like articulate it well when you say we move to Bitcoin not due to the world collapsing, but due to the world upgrading from one monetary system to another. Yeah, and 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 the upgrade, you know, we don't really need a uh, we don't we don't really need uh, like like as you're upgrading, you know, people are never left stranded. You know, the the old system is there trudging along, but there's a there's a superior alternative. The moment you move to the superior alternative, you know, you are able to use that one. You've joined the liquidity of the Bitcoin network. You're able to uh, transact on with, with people there so we don't witness this collapse that comes from hyperinflation which is a complete breakdown of the networks for trade you've also mentioned in the past that bitcoin is optimized for only one thing it's not optimized for scalability it's not optimized for speed it's optimized for resisting capture by the modern state and i was curious how you think about bitcoin standing up to an attack by a nation state or multiple nation states um, I think the key thing with Bitcoin to keep in mind is that um, it's it's essentially a very simple computer script, a computer program that just does very little. You know, it distributes one or two, maybe three megabytes of data around the world to thousands of computers every uh, 10 minutes or so. That's essentially what Bitcoin does. And, you know, compared to the technical capabilities of the machines that are superfluous today all over the world this is a very very um, small um, 
technical uh, requirement. It's just, it's very easy. You know, modern households will have many machines that are able to receive this amount of data every 10 minutes. So, you know, people are sending Bitcoin transactions on mesh network and um, on radio waves. And the, uh, the, the ability of people to um, stop Bitcoin and governments to attack Bitcoin Ultimately, you know, whatever they can do, you know, they could throw people in jail and they can do all these things. But ultimately, the ability of anybody who wants to in the world to sync up the blockchain and join the network and to get the next block every next 10 minutes is pretty simple uh, as a technical requirement. And so it's not very easy to imagine these kinds of um government attacks succeeding and the point that i keep making is that these uh, scenarios you know you could draw up a technical attack in which these things succeed and of course you know there are ways in which they can succeed but i think what these um the problem with these scenarios is that when uh, when, when the attack happens all that the attack does is that a it illustrates bitcoin's value proposition and then it increases the economic incentives for people to um, counter the attack in whatever way possible. And the thing is, you know, Bitcoin has no physical infrastructure on which it is reliant. So anyone anywhere in the world can join the Bitcoin network. And so if an attack happens on the Bitcoin network, you have many thousands of people who are willing to, um, you know, dedicate an afternoon and a few hundred dollars towards running a node or um, running an extra node or, um, you know, uh, maybe hooking up their satellite uh, to sync up blocks or, you know, these kinds of other, these kinds of solutions and redundancies for communicating the blockchain that we continue to see emerge every day. If there was an attack on Bitcoin, I think people underestimate the resource, the resourcefulness of um that will come about because of the enormous economic incentive for people involved in the network. And that's really what ultimately it is, what, what it ultimately is about. For me, as long as the economic incentive exists for people to use money that's not controlled by governments, people will find a way. I mean, governments have tried to fight the growth of drugs. And drugs, you know, you need to grow them under the sun and then you need to process them in a dedicated facility and then you need to pack them and take them and spread them all over the world and distribute them to the end consumer it's a highly elaborate complicated process and after 50 years of you know millions of people being killed and locked up and wars being fought over trying to stop the flow of drugs you can still pretty much get drugs pretty much everywhere in um, in the US in particular, you know, after 50 years of drug war. So imagine with Bitcoin, which is about sending only one or two or three megabytes of data around the world um, using all these many different technologies we have for communicating data. As And you imagine all the economic incentives that, is in, that are involved in it. I think these kinds of attacks are likely to ultimately they might make life difficult for bitcoiners they might be fatal for some bitcoiners but they will fail from stopping bitcoin ultimately from confirming roughly every 10 blocks like when an attack starts give it one month and i think bitcoin will still be there and it'll still be confirming one new block roughly every 10 months or so so it's um in 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 my mind really 
I think the effective way that governments could attack and weaken Bitcoin are not through these technical attacks, but it's through undermining the economic incentive for people to use Bitcoin. I think, in you know, uh, and I mentioned this in my uh, last uh, research report for my subscribers on Patreon, th- this is, you know, the, the, the most effective way for governments to kill Bitcoin right now would be for governments to implement the gold standard. If governments go back on the gold standard, I think the use case for Bitcoin is severely undermined. I think a lot of the, um, you know, the, the 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 people who code Bitcoin, the people who hold Bitcoin, the people who um, have been driven towards uh, Bitcoin, their motivation has ultimately been about them watching the disaster of government money unfold in their own countries, wherever that is, and you know, wherever you are in the world, you've watch these disasters uh, over the 20th century you're guaranteed to have not escaped them so um, i think this is an, an enormous driver of bitcoin adoption bitcoin awareness bitcoin coding bitcoin um, manpower bitcoin um, all, all of the things that continue to keep bitcoin alive are ultimately driven by the economic incentives for people to find a hard money the market wants a hard money natural order of a market is that people want to move their value towards a harder store of value and as long as governments deny people that as long as governments deny that to people people will continue to find to try to find alternatives and i think bitcoin will continue to grow um you know i'm not saying a gold standard is likely anytime soon but I think if it were to happen, it would be the most serious kind of challenge that Bitcoin could face. Wow. Okay, so let's switch gears for a second. I, I, I have a feeling your answer to this is going to be, it doesn't matter. But humor me, if it did, how would you foresee Bitcoin adoption playing out amongst institutions? I mean, can I go with I don't know instead of it doesn't matter? <laughs> no, it's totally fine. Easy cop out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, you don't have to play fortune teller. But I was curious if there's anything that you've seen that even seems remotely promising or if you think it's strictly going to be a grassroots movement. I really don't know. I go back and forth. We keep hearing about, you know, the tsunami of institutional money that's coming. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But ultimately... Um, yeah, it's always know. six to nine months away. Exactly. <laughs> it's always six to nine months away, right? Yeah, the applications are two weeks away and the money is six to nine months away, always. <laughs> okay, here's a better here's a better question. If you were running the Fed mm-hmm. today, what would you do? <laughs> I wouldn't turn up to work and I would fire everyone. <laughs> <laughs> That's an easy one. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, so I guess if you were... If you were against Bitcoin, I'm assuming you'd have everybody turn on to the gold standard, like you said, because you think it's the way to undermine Bitcoin or the single biggest or most credible yeah. threat. But if you're a pro-Bitcoin, what would you do? Well, I guess if I was, well, <laughs> again, you wouldn't be in charge of the Federal Reserve. But if you know <laughs> somebody put a gun to your head and told you, all right, this, uh, th- this, uh, this monster is going to crash and you're the only one who knows how to drive it, you know, like a Hollywood movie. And now you have to monetarily land it onto the safe shore. Um, I guess, you know, backing the dollar by Bitcoin might be an option of just buying up a whole bunch of Bitcoin reserves and pegging uh, the dollar to Bitcoin and making the dollar convertible to Bitcoin. Um, but uh, I guess if I was, if, if however, if I thought of it from the perspective of a, uh, a Federal Reserve official, I think, you know, within their sort of 
within their mandate, within what they're required to be tentatively doing, although that is always shifting over the last 100 years that they've been around, but within their general sort of mandate about um, employment and financing the government and trying to striking a balance between uh, providing the people with something that is good while also allowing the government some sort of um, monetary control of some sense. I think the best balance would be if you know if you were in charge of the Fed and you were trying to make this institution sustain itself for the long-term future, arguably it would be moving towards a gold standard because the U.S. government has a lot more of the gold supply than the Bitcoin supply. So arguably they would be better off moving towards a gold standard um, in the long run. Um, well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I think ultimately the, the key thing for me is that ultimately the development of Bitcoin is largely going to be, I think, a free market institution. So these sort of hypotheticals continue to break down on um, on the shores of reality when you try to stretch the metaphor. Definitely. The, yeah. Definitely. I mean, yeah, there's one thing in theory, completely different game in practice. I recently was listening to, I think, Econ Talk, and I came across this notion that one of the guests was talking about, and I was interested to hear your opinion on it. It's that when people talk about a free market, the popular notion is that the market is free from the state. But in reality, free market means it's free from rent seeking. And I was curious if you disagree or agree with that sentiment, what that means, like what, what's the significance behind that? And does it mean anything for Bitcoin? Not really, no, because I think, you know, the, the, the there are only two kinds of transactions, of, of interactions that can happen between human beings, and these can be based on um, consent or coercion. And government, by definition, government is a, is a synonym of coercion. Government, everything that it does is based on coercion. And so anytime two individuals are interacting with one another, if they are interacting based on the terms that they determine, that they accept themselves, then that's a consensual exchange whereas if government is imposing terms on them then that's some sort of coercion government is saying you have to sell at this price or you have to give us a cut or you have to um, you know follow this rule or that that's never going to be in the interest of the two people that are uh, doing the exchange it's always in the interest of the person abroad uh, of, of the third party that is uh, imposing this or uh, in the interest of government so um, this notion that you know we could have government intervention in markets or government supervision of markets w without it being corrupt or with it helping the markets I think is a complete contradiction I think uh, any kind of coercive involvement in the affairs of people is against the, what a free market is. A free market is ultimately about people making decisions themselves. And so making the prices that they want um, and the quantities that they want and having the freedom to say no to any transaction. And all government operations ultimately are a violation of the free market because all government operations ultimately run on taxes and taxes are, um, you know, uh, collected coercively. So for me, you know, uh, the notion that government would be a good idea if it wasn't corrupt, if there was no rent seeking, I think misses the point. Um, the rent seeking would not be possible without government, without coercion, without, without government playing the role of somebody who is able to enter into every transaction between two parties and impose attacks and impose restrictions and rules and regulations on it. I think um, people would only engage in transactions that are mutually beneficial. It is only the fact that government forces people to trade in a certain way and 
preys on um, the value that they create that um, causes uh, all, all of these um, market failures that these people complain about. Got it. So one subsumes the other. I'm going to switch gears one more time. And this is one of my favorite segments of the show we do on occasion. And we tapped on the Twitter hive mind to ask questions that they want answered. So it's like my followers, your followers, token daily followers at large. And these are the questions that were submitted. And I'd like to do a quick rapid fire round with you to see what mm-hmm. your thoughts are. So to begin, yep. Michael Goldstein asks, Mingarian versus Musician views on money and how it applies to how we analyze Bitcoin. Yeah, I, d- I don't really see much difference between uh, 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 Menger and Mises on this. I Generally, the thing is, uh, people a lot in academia sometimes like to get... Um, like to get into these uh, fights between dead people, you know, pick up two dead people and get them to fight by reading books that were written 20, 30, 40 years apart. (laughs) And, you know, saying this guy said this and that guy said that. And so this guy's an idiot and you're an idiot for listening to him. And um, there's a lot of that on the internet, obviously. But I'm... Um, for me, I, I don't really see uh, a real disagreement in this. So I've, I've, I think you're uh, help, if you're if you're reading Bitcoin for me, I found the work of Menger and Mises is extremely useful uh, in this, and um, I, I don't see much uh, of of a problem with either of them. So sorry, Bitstein. Um, And the next tweet was from BTC HAP, and they asked about the JP Morgan shitcoin. And that's, of course, alluding to the JP Morgan stablecoin that they had come out with. Yeah, I mean, uh, congratulations. JP Morgan has come up with a new JP Morgan checking account. This is ultimately (laughs) what it is. It's a claim on a dollar from JP Morgan, which JP Morgan may or may not fulfill depending on whatever goes on in JP Morgan these days. Um, but, you know, they have many of these kinds of um, uh, instruments and activities and ways of generating money. I see no way in which anything about Bitcoin or cryptography is going to help them do this um, I think ultimately this is just we've seen enough of this we've seen a lot of this over the last few years in this space um, you know this is at the stage it's taken at the stage of the marketing people and the strategy people and the uh, you know big broad uh, uh, bold, ambitious headline people. And then once it starts to filter down towards the nitty-gritty engineers and the people down in the coal mines of the um, JP Morgan data operations and so on, and they start realizing, you know, this is cargo cult engineering. You know, we already have something that works and it has problems. We could improve it in certain ways, but the idea that we're going to add a new shitcoin into the operation of JP Morgan and that will fix JP Morgan, <laughs> I think is, I it, it would absolutely astonish me if it were true. But hey, I have been astonished before. So let's give them the benefit of the doubt so that we can laugh at them again. <laughs> How gracious of you. So we had three individual people ask why you unfollowed them and then some a few others asked why you blocked them so 
I guess my actual question is what gets you to unfollow people on Twitter? Like what is something that you will not tolerate and then will either respond in unfollows or blocks? Well, so the thing with unfollow is I say, you know, the key to enjoying Twitter is to be completely promiscuous about it. So I'll follow anyone and I'll follow, I'll unfollow anyone and people should stop getting emotionally attached to the idea of being followed by someone. It's, um, you know, you're seeing somebody's tweets and so you have to be really interested in what that person happens to want to say at that period of time and i've been on twitter for 10 years and you know you're always changing your interests and you're always changing things that you follow so i think people shouldn't really um get worked up about that i the thing about it is that you know a lot of people like to follow a very large number of people and then I don't know, they use some sort of special software for curating the tweets or they miss most of the tweets. But I I, I like to stick to a number of people that allows me, you know, enough tweets to see everything that they tweet. And, um, you know, you get to follow people for a period of time, get familiar with their interesting ideas. And then, you know, you move on, you see new people. It's uh, it, Twitter is not a family relationship. It's, it's an intellectual place where you just go and you get new, exposed to new intellectual ideas. It's not an emotional attachment. Um, but uh, having said that, on terms of blocking, I think the thing is that um, over time, you just, um, after the number of followers that I have started to grow, Twitter becomes uh, too interactive to be fun. Effectively, you check on your uh, mentions, and it's just a whole bunch of people who wrote, who heard something you said and want to pick a fight about it, and a whole bunch of people fighting with each other around uh, things. And, you know, that makes it impossible for you to use Twitter the way you want to use it, which is to follow a few interesting people and have a few interesting conversations here and there. And so this, um, I just, you know, ultimately for me, I it, it's a completely a counterproductive use of my time to be on Twitter and engaging with any kind of negative uh, and hostile ideas. And I, and I think it's, 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 it's perfectly normal for people to disagree. People should uh, get over the fact that other people disagree with them and get over the fact that, you know, just because you've come across something that I wrote on the internet and you disagree with it, that I have to waste my evening or afternoon or morning or, you know, um, put my life to the side and then argue over uh, over it with you. So I've, uh, over time, I've just uh, started to become uh, more trigger happy with the mute button, but then I, um, <laughs> I became much more happier with the block button because I think ultimately, you know, this, you know, uh, my Twitter uh, is, free in terms of you not having to pay for it but if you being able to have access to my twitter is, is a waste of my time if i check on my mentions and there's you with you know five six uh, tweets wasting my time about something that i just don't find interesting or if you're being rude or if you're being uh, disrespectful or if you're you know um inciting a twitter mob on me you know people who make snarky comments and quote tweet your tweet and then you know you will have to yep. deal with about uh, you with uh, pitchforks and torches yeah yeah, exactly. A day of uh, yeah, a day a day of snarky people coming in and making stupid jokes on your mentions. So you know, you you, you cut that thing off from the sort. Initially, as soon as people are being hostile, for me the idea is you know a block button right now is going to be the least um, 
the least uh, amount of headache that is going to be involved with this. There's no way that it's going to consume less time. And ultimately, for me, this is about time. I'm an extremely busy person. I have a lot of things going on, and I don't like to spend uh, time on things. And so, you know, there are other accounts on Twitter. <laughs> and if you want to follow my account on Twitter, then, you know, try and not do things that waste my time on stupid things. And I hope that, uh, you know, people continue to, to talk about me blocking them. So that develops that reputation. So people stop wasting my time on Twitter. Yeah, fine goal to have on Twitter, the blocker. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the last couple questions, Jose wanted to know what you thought of key management as a barrier to entry. Yeah, that's a serious one. Um, it's uh, it's 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 when when I talk about um, you know the gold standard being the uh, most serious way governments could harm Bitcoin. There's another question. There's another scenario that I think about in my uh, Patreon newsletter this month. Um, this research paper. It's about the two scenarios where I think Bitcoin is the weakest. The one is which government in which government imposes a gold standard. The one second one is imagine we do have a hyperinflationary collapse of government currencies and governments get out of the market of money hypothetically speaking and now we just have complete free markets in money then the question becomes th- this question of bitcoin's uh, key management and user interface and all these things that becomes a pretty uh, pressing question because then really you know it depends on how liquid bitcoin is versus gold or whatever other kind of monetary instruments, who knows, might emerge by then. But in that kind of world, you know, I'm not so sure that Bitcoin's um, uh, ease of use and liquidity uh, will necessarily mean that it uh, wins against gold. In, in, in a sense that, you know, we've seen many things come and go and pretend to be money and gold has always come back out on top and all these other things continue to collapse in value compared to, to it. So we've seen many pretenders to gold's throne over time. And at this point, you know, the liquidity behind gold is around 100 times the liquidity behind Bitcoin in terms of, you know, the market price of the total supply outstanding today is roughly, of course, this is obviously, um, these numbers are, uh, in, in the case of gold, they're very, um, well, not very, but they are somehow speculative. And in the case of Bitcoin, we don't know how many golds, how many coins are lost, but it's in the order of 100 to 1. So there's 100 times more gold liquidity out there than Bitcoin liquidity, which means that um, you know, if we were to have a free market competition between gold and Bitcoin right now, I'm not so sure that the choice of a free market uh, gold is uh, would uh, would be such a terrible thing. I think it, it it's it's highly conceivable that we just get all kinds of payment solutions being built on top of gold, and gold goes back to its normal monetary role. That's really the question of um, you know Bitcoin key management. The idea for me, I think. Um, the, the 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 problem I think that Bitcoin has in this regard is that um, ultimately competence with code is something that is by its nature going to always be very unevenly distributed, and maybe you know um, that might be a, a real barrier because it's always going to involve some degree of trust or so on. Um, I'm, I'm you know I'm I'm here I'm not saying I necessarily believe this but I'm here I'm I'm making the sort of uh, 
case against Bitcoin from from this uh, from this regard. Maybe this stuff becomes maybe there's always going to be a, a, a level in which I will always feel insecure around my key management because there were always people who are better than me at managing this. It's um, I think I'm not entirely sold on this idea, but I think uh, I mean I don't really agree, but I think. There is something there that ultimately Bitcoin, for it to continue to survive and for it to continue to do, um, for it to continue to be secure, ultimately it needs that extra wind in its sail of terrible monetary policy all over the world. We need that kind of bad monetary policy um, making people want to hold hard money and making people um, get online and learn about hard money and being interested in Bitcoin. I think that's ultimately the real driver of this. And um, it's it's an open question. I, I still think Bitcoin's hardness will ultimately win out. Um, but it's an open question whether... Uh, We'll see, you know, whether 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 this kind of ease, uh, you know, people who have people have been using gold for thousands of years, and it's part of our almost collective subconscious uh, 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 as a way of understanding value and how value works as a physical thing that you can move around and so on. So maybe, uh, yeah, uh, we'll see. The next question is what Bitcoin transaction fees will look like when the reward starts drying up in a few years. I think. The real question underneath that is just how do we maintain security? Yeah, so for me, for me, ultimately, you know, for, for Austrian economists, um, cost of production is determined by value. So market value demand determines how much people uh, will pay for something, and then producers produce up to that uh, price. That's generally how Austrian economics economists think about it. And so for me, uh, you know, the value of Bitcoin is um, currently what drives people to want to hold Bitcoin and so the price of Bitcoin rises. And that, um, you know, the cost of the production of Bitcoin will work itself out through the sort of mechanisms of the system that the miners end up getting paid um, from the new coins. Currently, the majority of their payment right now is new coins and the, the transaction fees are tiny. But I think if people still value Bitcoin, there is absolutely no reason why they would not value it enough to pay the transactions for it. So right now they're paying for Bitcoin security in the inflation of new coins that are going to the miners. You know, right now, if you're a Bitcoin holder, you're witnessing $6 million roughly, I think, current prices of uh, new Bitcoins being pumped onto the market every day. So that's $6 million of new Bitcoin that is exactly as good as your old Bitcoin and it's out there on the market and all these new buyers are buying the new stuff and it's, uh, you know, it's uh, delaying <laughs> your your Bitcoins from appreciating. So effectively, you're still willing to pay for that. And, you know, people don't have to consciously know that they're paying for it that way. They are paying for that for it that way, whether they like it or not. And they're willing to put up with the price. And so uh, we've seen, you know, in, in, in periods in which uh, we have... Um, uh, the congestion around the network, we see how people will pay high uh, tra transaction prices. We see how people pay much higher transaction costs to get on exchanges to buy Bitcoin in the first place. And um, 
you know, exchange fees are obviously much higher than Bitcoin transaction fees at this point, and people have no problems for using these. And we see this um, in also the fact that, you know, in most of the markets for Bitcoin uh, over-the-counter, where people are buying face-to-face or uh, people are buying over local to Bitcoin, premiums are pretty significant. Um, you know, we're mentioning Lebanon and Jordan. When you buy in these places, you're, you'd be lucky to get 5% uh, premium on your uh, Bitcoin generally because it's not very liquid over there. Plus, when you think about the volatility, I mean, that's effectively also, uh, uh, you know, um, it's it, it's a cost you have to incur that you have to take into account and that you don't allow stops you from um, um, from being able to liquidate the money at every point in time. So people are people incur a lot of costs now for holding Bitcoin in real terms, and yet we still find enough demand for it to continue to hold its value at this price. You know, and enough for the miners to continue to want to provide new um, mining hash rate to the network. And so I see no reason, absolutely, I see absolutely no reason why the um, the, the people who want to have Bitcoin will um, will not want to pay the transaction fee. And I think they will continue to pay transaction fees. And ultimately what it comes down to is that Block space is extremely scarce. Block space is very scarce. So I calculate, I think at this point, um, I last did the math. When I last did the math, you know, one byte of data on the Bitcoin blockchain was about five cents. And now I think it's maybe a little bit less, maybe two or three cents. But still, that's one byte of data. One byte of data on your laptop is a billionth of that or a trillionth of that is the cost of it. But getting it on the on the on the Bitcoin blockchain, it's much much more expensive. So block space is always has always been valuable since this Bitcoin thing started working. People have been valuing the block space and. If the value is there, the cost of production will follow, and you know people who value it will pay for it, and miners will provide the blocks. That's that's how I see it. Got it. And the last question I had 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 to ask this one. This came in from from a troll. When will Ripple Coin become the standard? <laughs> <laughs> Probably two weeks again. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow, it's a lot a lot quicker than we all expected. Amazing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Safe. I'm not gonna take up any more of your time. Really appreciated the conversation today. Thank you so much, Suna. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Hey everyone, Suna here. If you liked this episode of The Token Daily and want to help us take crypto to the top of Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, then please do us a favor and rate, review, and smash that subscribe button. To leave a review, simply go to the Token Daily homepage and scroll down until you see five blank stars. Taking a few seconds to fill those stars in and leaving a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. Thanks again for choosing to listen to the Token Daily. I'll see you next time.